Welcome back to another episode of Black Diplomats, where we talk about foreign policy, global culture, and international news from a black perspective. Y'all should know who I am by now, but I'm Terrell Starr, in case you're new to the podcast. Last week, I spoke with the super interesting Alexa Kellogg Kormanova, a queer black woman who studies LGBTQ plus issues in Central Asia. Alexa, who uses they them pronouns, told me about joining a Russian-speaking Jehovah Witnesses group in Chicago where they learned the language from native speakers. When Alexa went out to preach the gospel, they met folks who had been colonized by the Soviet Union and had left a lasting impression. After leaving the witness organization to explore their queer identity, Alexa still had a love for the Russian language and their curiosity about the people of Central Asia. If you want to hear the full conversation, you can download it on your favorite podcast app. This week, Alexa and I talk about her interest in black feminism and how that informs her research of LGBTQ plus issues in Central Asia. They also talk about living in Kyrgyzstan, how they ended up marrying a trans Kyrgyz man, opening up to Kyrgyz friends while being queer, and what it means to be a trailblazer for other black women who identify as LGBTQ plus. Here's the final part of our conversation. Tell me about your research specifically in feminism and how you identify as a feminist and how that conforms to the work that you do. Just introduce us to your research and tell us about how you became interested in Central Asia and how you came to focus on Kyrgyzstan. Okay. Yeah, so um, like I said, when I went to Russia is when I actually began to become more interested in Central Asia because I was seeing, you know, a lot of the same things that were happening here as far as like uh, who's doing construction, who's doing, you know, working at retail stores, who's who has like the lower level whatever jobs right and i was seeing like okay central asians are doing all this stuff right um so i kind of just like opened my eyes and i'm like ah i i think i really want to concentrate more on central asia and this relationship between russians and central asian asians now and thinking through how central asians are racialized by by Russians and also by the West. Um, and it puts them in this very unique position, right? Um, at least for me in my perspective. And so I think when, after I decided that I wanted to shift my focus to Central Asia and I kind of brought up these ideas of coloniality and colonialism in, in the region and I got pushback, it, that kind of spurred me on to investigate more because I was like, why is this provoking people? Nonetheless, like people from the West, like <laughs> and also Russians, right? They they don't like that word. They don't. I mean, it's for real. Like they don't like that word. And a lot of them see it as like, oh, this is like colonialism is only uh, this thing reserved for the West. But if you think about it globally, that's not how that works, right? white supremacy is a global phenomenon <laughs> and it manifests itself in different ways in different contexts like 
So I, I was just so shocked that people were actually just not interested in talking about um, the colonial past of, you know, in Eurasia, basically. Um, and so I was like, OK, what's the easiest way I can do this? Like kind of slide in a little bit and talk about this. Um, and I thought about it. And because of like I'm very much uh I'm very much inspired and my thought is very much formed because of or by black feminist literature, right? So intersectionality is like the core, right? And if you think about it in an intersectional intersectional way, right? You can't detach certain, you know, gender, race, sexuality, right? Um, so I decided, like, okay, maybe I will approach this from the lens of, like, with an intersectional lens. But I'm going to first talk about womanhood and what woman is as a category in Central Asia in order to expose and talk about what it means to be racialized in that area and what it means, you know, to, like, kind of have these, well, also be erased at the same time. Because if there is this discourse of racelessness, that was, you know, uh, that was spurred on by the Soviet Union, right? Then you're also your your experiences as someone who is raced in that region is is being erased, right? Um, and there's not a, an ability to even speak about it, right? So, I that's how I became interested in that, uh, like that particular region and doing and focusing on feminism and. LGBTQ activism because I feel like you can't really talk about those things in that region without even talking about race either, right? So that's just kind of my way of like bringing this, you know, rethinking or trying to uh, kind of talk about colonialism and colonial legacies of the Soviet Union uh, in that context. Yeah, because I, I, I feel like even though mine's is more geared towards like post-socialist, right? So after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, I don't think that, and I think people tend to do this and they do this with a lot of major events, right? They're like, oh, well, we have the civil rights movement, so we must be post-racial. <laughs> well, <laughs> Obama was president, so we must be post-racial. Like, it must be all over. And I, I'm very much, like dedicated to the idea that the word post and post-socialism and the word post and post-colonialism is very, very shaky. Like it's very precarious and there are residues and legacies of colonialism that it still exists. And it's for some reason way easier to see it in the West than it is to see it in Eurasia for some people. And I don't understand why. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that needs to be unpacked but also carefully, right? And I understand that as well. And I think sometimes like scholars in our particular uh, discipline don't understand that, like, I think they just see us as just coming in and being like, okay, you're just upset or, you know, you just want to take this uh, experience that you had and project it onto this place. And it's like, no. People, when we go into this part of the world, People project their racist shit on us all the fucking time. Yeah. Okay, that and that's and it it really pisses me off. 
It really does. That when we get this pushback of you're taking your Western experience and applying it to us. And here's the mistake in that. The very basic one is that you presume that we as black people and as black Americans have all the rights and privileges of America. So you assume that we have this generalized Western take on you without realizing that we are colonialized as well. Our bodies don't function as full Americans. And so when you look at our analysis of this region, you're looking at us like white people, primarily because that's all you pretty much talk to or deal with. And I know this because... I casually ask people, how many black people do you know? And I'm usually the one that they know in any meaningful way. One, (laughs) I am usually the black person. Do you know? And I'm not talking about, do you work with someone? Mm -hmm. Because you can work with someone and not know jack shit about them. I know people who have gone to Chicago, New York, D.C. that has some of the largest black populations in this country and they have never gotten time got taken the time to know any black people so in our field as you can imagine as we all know the whiteness the, these same not only do we have people particularly russians and they're terrible about it and i have no problem saying they're like they're fucking awful when it comes to this whole thing of you are using your Western concept of race, right? Meanwhile, they treat the Central Asian like we do the Mexicans here, right? So there's, and when I mean they, I mean, I'm speaking about the, uh, to be careful, I'm not stereotyping every Russian person, but just the the concept of race, the Central Asian or the person from the Caucasus is very much racialized, right? And so when you talk about imposing things, it's like they're just, there's this tone deafness and this lack of, it's very tone deaf. And and I think primarily because each time we do talk about this and many people are in academia and they worry about not getting the right um, support when they're pursuing their tenure or even if they're graduate students, not pissing off the wrong person because it's so important in academia as I know, right? Even though I haven't pursued it, and so now we're just seeing, uh, I don't know what it is about George Floyd. I don't know what it is about this brother who was murdered on TV because there are black people who are murdered before. I've had all kinds of white people in the region come to me, say they're sorry, this and the third. I've had people who I've blocked and who are just complete assholes who, who have reached out to me to say that, oh man, Terrell, I'm sorry, what have you, what have you. And... I've had a number of people who study blackness who are white and I'm kind of cautious about them to an extent because there's a such thing as getting too familiar. You get what I'm saying? It's something that as a black person by default, we can't, we can't get too familiar, but but again, so there are so many privileges Mm -hmm. that white people have. And part of it is erasing our existence and erasing our perspective Mm -hmm that we can turn into an intellectual exercise. Thus the lack of support because one, they lack the intellectual interest and they don't give a fuck, right? Because I look at this field and I'm kind of going, I just have to say it, it's uh, because I want people to hear it. It, it because, because I can say it and I don't give a fuck. But this field I think is for 
white people to be in their cocoon and not have to hear about race because they marry locals, you know, they, they marry people from Russia, Ukraine, et cetera, and they never have to deal with the Negroes, you know? And so when we come in here with our little black stuff, we're spoiling their fun, right? We're, we're, we're just spoiling everything for them because they think that they are liberal and they think that they are woke. And then when we come in with our own lived experiences, they realize that they aren't. And I, irritates them and they take it out on us. I just had to say that. So I'm, I'm sorry, but, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, I, I totally like 100%. Like, I, I totally agree with that. They, I think that, you know, and, and it's an uncomfortable conversation, right? It's uncomfortable, but we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. We've been uncomfortable our whole fucking lives. Exactly. So, yeah, that's, that is my main, which is funny because like, I, I don't know. I'm completely just, I think more so it, it, I'm just obsessed with the fact that people don't want to talk about this. And that's the thing that is like literally driving me to talk about it because I'm like, why? I, I do not completely understand why. Um, and to the note about you saying, you know, it it, it does homogenize, you know, the West also by saying this right and not even thinking about the perspective and the the literatures that have countered like western liberalism and mainstream white feminism right and just kind of putting us all together and being like oh yeah that's just you know that's the west that's it you know and you're coming and taking this framework and putting it on to to this particular context um and it's like no it's a bit it's way more nuanced than that all right, so tell me about Kyrgyzstan. I've never been. Now, I've been to Uzbekistan once and I fell in love with it. And I'm definitely going back again. But tell us how you really got into Kyrgyzstan. Just tell us about the country, first of all, and your experiences while you were there. And if you're comfortable with it, tell us how you met your partner. Yeah, so, well, it's funny. I'm completely comfortable with it now because my partner did something for the State Department in which he was like, oh, we met on Tinder. And I was like, you told them that we met on Tinder? <laughs> First of all, I was on a State Department program. I'm sure they don't want to know that their student was on Tinder. But, like, come on. I feel like we all do that. And, like, I do it maybe not for the reasons that people think that Tinder is for, right? <laughs> but, you know, to actually access the local community and find community, right? Um, because let's be, let's be real, when you're on study abroad, right, as a black person, you're typically the only black person in that cohort. And you're, I mean, I a lot of times have felt unsafe actually being in the cohort, right? I felt more safe being outside of it, right? And because you're very easy to spot as well. And Americans are super loud in other countries. They talk, we talk really loud. So, so you have a bunch of us together and it's just like, it's too, it's very intense. Um, so yeah, you know, we met on Tinder. Um, and at the time I was doing this project um, along with my language program um, about the LGBTQ community. Um, and feminism there. So that's also kind of how I started in that direction as well. Um, and, you know, I had a really cool language partner who identified as a feminist. Um, I love her to death. She's like my sister, um, <laughs> Nerzada. Um, and 
she actually, uh, her and one of her friends, they they run this like um, community meetings for people with lupus because lupus is actually like there's a lot of people with lupus uh, in Kyrgyzstan, um, apparently. So um, she was having one of these meetings and her friend was like, oh, Alexa, like I was like, oh, I, I kind of want to do something tonight. Um, and they're like, oh, this party is happening uh, I can't really, I don't want to disclose where because I don't want to put anyone at stake or that community at stake. But that is how I kind of connected also with the LGBT community as well as actually through the feminists there because a lot of them also identify as LGBTQ. And it gave me a reason to call my now partner again and be like, do you know where this place is? Because <laughs> I can't find it. <laughs> and then he was like, yes, I'll come with you. And I was like, score. Yeah. So <laughs> we went together uh, there. And and actually, it was really cool because in Bishkek, I don't know if it still exists. Um, and this is the thing I'm talking about. When, when you hang out with locals, then you find like the other places, right? That not necessarily like people in your cohort are finding because sometimes they're like they're not willing to explore right um or they're they're like oh i'm gonna go to this museum but that's kind of the extent of their exploration um but so my partner and i at that time he wasn't my partner right but we went to the opening of this place called brooklyn bar and it was 90s hip-hop themed bar in bishkek pictures of snoop dogg Biggie, Tupac. It was like, I was like in heaven. And so were they because their opening night, there was an actual like African-American woman <laughs> at their, you know, opening night. So, but it's so awesome that like you can find these like pockets of blackness, right? In these places that not like, that are not, like you know on the surface you got to dig a little deep for it right but i found uh, i went to this brooklyn bar i found an afro bar um it was owned by a south african man who had been living there for nine years and his brother had been living there for 20. um so he had this this really cool spot and it was really comfortable because this is owned by a black man right living in kyrgyzstan so uh, my partner and i uh yeah, that's how we kind of connected there. But it's interesting because my partner and I also connected through Kimberly Crenshaw, not through her technically, right? But like through her readings, right? And I think that also shook my world because I was like talking about Kimberly Crenshaw and about intersectionality. And my partner's like, oh yeah, I know about that. I know all about that. And I was like, what? <laughs> like. <laughs> It's really interesting. Like, it's not even just that experience, but also even the experience with, like, my host family. Like, they were really down. Like, seriously. Like, I would be sitting in the kitchen at 3 in the morning talking to, like, uh, I'm not going to call her my host mother because she's technically, like, younger than me. <laughs> so my host sister. We're going to call her that. Um, and her friends and just talking about, like, their experiences as women there. And, like... You know, I think sometimes like even on those programs, like, you know, you have the pre-departure meetings and they really set a country up like they are constructing a country from the Western imaginary for real. And like saying like, oh, well, women can't drive there or 
women are, you know, because it's a Muslim country, right? So they have these, you know, prejudices and stereotypes about the people there. But, you know, at, at first, I, you know, when they were, when I was at the pre-departure meeting and they were talking about this, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm like, they're sending me to somewhere, you know, where I'm going to be on this dirt road or whatever, sleeping on the floor, possibly on a tashuk, right? And when I got there, it was hilarious because my host sister picked me up in a Range Rover. And I was like, what is that? And I mean, she picked me up in a Range Rover. So she was driving. You know what I mean? And, you know, we went to her really nice, like, apartment. She has, like, three kids. Well, now she has four. She's had a baby. But, like... I wasn't sleeping on the floor. I had my own room, right? And it was just, like, the complete opposite of what the story was. Of course, like, you know, some people had different experiences, right? And not across the board is it like that. But um, at least in my experience, like, it wasn't as it was presented in such a flattened, homogenous way, right? That people here are like this and, like, not welcoming also to queer identity and which that was interesting and maybe because it was again my position as visitor right I don't live there I'm not a native to that space so maybe they were just like oh there's nothing we can do with her anyway she has a shaved head and she's queer like you know but there wasn't a hostile so they knew yeah and it, like they were okay with it. Like, I was worried, actually. And I was like, man, they're not going to want me around their kids. But they knew. They knew. <laughs> so, so and and they were completely like, okay, that's what that's what she does. Okay. One of the things I'm listening to is what's, what's really important, because right now you're currently a PhD student, anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. It's really important for us to consider places outside of Russia, because you started with the Russian language, and then you went to Central Asia because it has a lot to do with safety, right? And there are not enough people in this field that have that lived experience to say, well, your body, because that's really important for me. So much of this has nothing to do with your mentality. It's about how your body functions with it, right? And because as a man, my body functions differently across these spaces, especially because you're looking at me right now. I'm not super tall, but I'm not short. I'm kind of athletic, but my point is that Central Asia is your sweet spot, right? Like, it's your sweet spot, and I think more people would feel more welcome entering this field if they knew that Russia wasn't their only option. Right, yes, yes, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Um, and I, I, but that's a, I think that that's an issue also with the structure of the university, right, too, <laughs> who has access to even that information. Like, even anthropology itself, like, People typically, when I say that I'm in anthropology or doing like uh, sociocultural anthropology, they don't actually know that sociocultural anthropology is a thing. They think of Indiana Jones when I say anthropology, right? Like an archaeologist, basically, which you can also do that, right? But we have four subfields, which include linguistic anthropology and medical anthropology. And they're all of them are actually interdisciplinary. There are archaeologists that are more like or implement uh, methods from social cultural anthropology as well. Um, so that means writing ethnographically. And I mean, I've read projects where it was like 
all four subfields someone was using, which made for an amazing project. And I think maybe that space needed that, right? And I think, yeah, I think it has to do a lot with the access to even, you know, studying Eurasia itself for black students. Because like if your assumption as a black person is that Eurasia is just Russia, like, you know what I mean? Like that's your only, and I blame the Cold War, Cold War for this mostly, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that it's just Russia, right? And then you just have this flattened view of, you know, okay, so Eastern Europe and Russia, right? And that's it. <laughs> Nothing else, right? And so like it's access to that that's like, I think once you get past that and you're like, oh, wait, Central Asia exists, the Caucasus exists, and like they're also racialized as black, right? That really complicates this idea of also black diaspora, right? <laughs> so like, and I, I don't know actually if post-colonial studies is ready for that. So I think it's a double binding because it seems like on each side, like there, there is a dialogue that's happening, but people aren't ready to have that dialogue. So tell me, how do you manage your mental health as a PhD student at a primarily white institution who's in anthropology, who works in this part of the world? Given your analysis, given that you're very proud and you just like me, right? You just, you real straight up, you have a black center focus. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and, and, and so you're, you're a trailblazer. But you, <laughs> thank you. You are. You're a trailblazer in what you do and that's hard. So talk about how you manage your mental health and dealing with these crazy ass white people and, and also the support that you feel you need in order to be the star that you are and the bigger one that you're going to become. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I think, first of all, like, I definitely at this point, I think that everyone should do that. I think this should be normalized everywhere, but people should definitely have a therapist even before they have, feel like they're they're having, you know, anything going on in their personal lives. But definitely if you're doing a PhD, I think you should also, like that should be the second thing you're like, okay, I filled out this application, I put in the paperwork, I got accepted into this program, I need to find a therapist. I need to have someone to talk to about academia who's not necessarily in academia, right? Um, I do a lot of roller skating. <laughs> My mom is like the roller queen of Chicago. But yeah, so I'm I'm not there. Like she's like an amazing roller skater, but you know, it's nice to just let go and be silly, right? Like so that that's what roller like that's kind of my like taking care of my mental health like is kind of just like making myself vulnerable in that way of like, oh, I'm roller skating, but I'm doing it poorly. <laughs> um I'm falling on my butt. I'm just not thinking about all this other stuff. Um and I would I don't know. I would say that finding an intellectual community is really important. Um, and I'm really grateful like that I actually was able to come to ACES and meet you and uh, other people in person and like form this community because it is very isolating. And you can feel like, oh, dang, am I the only one? And but the, the answer is no, you're not. You just have to find your intellectual community and people that you're actually in conversation with. Um, also, I would say intellectually. Um, yeah, I, I, I will say that at Berkeley, I have a really supportive advisor. Um, and I think that 
that's that's a lot of it, right? That he's very supportive in what I'm doing. Um, we both, I think, sharpen each other's intellectual thought, right? And that's really important to me. And overall, he's just a really kind person, right? And, you know, I think that's helpful. If I had someone I had to, like, constantly, you know, argue with about the idea of coloniality in that space or colonialism in that space or racialization in that space in Eurasia uh, or specifically in Kyrgyzstan, um, then it would be exhausting. Like it would just wear me down, you know, but I don't feel that I have to keep doing that with him. I, I feel that he's open and I, I don't feel that a lot of people are open. That's the problem. People aren't open to that conversation, but he is. So that's been like my experience so far as like, you know, working through this, you know, I guess problem, right? Um, and thinking about, you know, Central Asia uh, in relation to Russia and the West. Um, and even Central Asia itself, right? There are racializations that happen there between Central Asians, right? And there's so much more that could be like busted open if we just are open to the conversation about racialization and what is deemed non-colonial and raceless. My last question to you is, now that you have been in the field for a while and you, you know, you're familiar with Kyrgyzstan, um, can you twerk in peace in Kyrgyzstan? <laughs> I feel like I would only do that at the the LGBTQ bar that's there. <laughs> I'm not doing it at nobody's wedding because I feel like it would turn into a show, right? Like they would just, I mean, yeah. yeah. you know, you got to tell them to throw that. What's what's that local currency there? The sum. 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 They have a Coyote Ugly there. Word. Yes, they have a Coyote Ugly bar. And I do actually want to visit this bar. Sums every no, they're not throwing sums there. This is, this, they're throwing some American dollars and some euros there because you know who go there. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, yes. oh yeah. yeah! Oh hell yeah! So, yeah! 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 yeah. <laughs> Listen, yo, thank you for coming on. This 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 been dope as hell. This is this shit is fucking dope, yo. Thank you for having me. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of Black Diplomat. We appreciate your support. I want to give a special shout out to all my faithful patrons who've been giving each month. These episodes take a lot of time to plan and produce, so please go over to our Patreon and give what you can if you want to hear more episodes like this. Also, go to your favorite podcast apps and give Black Diplomats a five-star rating, especially on iTunes. It really helps us promote the podcast. This episode has been made possible with support from the Outrider Foundation. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week.